Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We all had to summon something to get through the past 15 months or so. Call it resilience or whatever you want. But the pandemic invariably hit some people harder. For people living with drug and alcohol addiction, the pandemic presented a massive roadblock. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, you'll hear from staff reporter Fedora Zarkin, who's been covering COVID-19 since before the virus hit Oregon. On the first half of the show, we talked about his recent series that profiles people living with addiction. We talked about their struggles and their successes. On the second half of the show, we discussed Fedor's decision to head to Southeast Portland's Mount Tabor Park on a recent sunny day to chat up strangers. We talked about what he learned and the simple joys in post-pandemic life. Here's our conversation. Fedor Zarhin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Fedor, you're a man of many talents and wide range in your reporting, and I want to approach this episode kind of in two acts. First, your recent coverage of people with drug or alcohol addictions during the pandemic, and then kind of a a more joyous trip to Mount Tabor. Does that sound good? Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you. And yes, absolutely. First, on the addiction front, why do you want to tell these stories of people living with drug and alcohol addiction during the pandemic? It kind of started with the news uh, in October and also in December of how overdose deaths from opioids kind of spiked nationally and in Oregon during the pandemic. And, you know, people figured it was probably related to the pandemic, but the numbers were really so abstract and the news releases were just so abstract that I was curious, like, okay, here's data that clearly points to some amount of suffering out there, but I have no idea how it works and how things actually play out for uh, people. And, you know, overdoses are just the most clear statistic there is. Mm-hmm. But like it takes a lot to get to an overdose, like with relapses, for example. So I just wanted to know how that world worked, what people's struggles were. It can be hard, Fedora, to, to get in touch with people in, in normal times. How did you track down some of the people you profiled and, and went deep with uh, in your recent coverage? How hard was it to, to get people to, to talk? I learned about some recovery centers like the Alano Club or Fourth Dimension Recovery, which are kind of nexuses for Portland's recovery community. You know, there's lots of meetings there. People 
get to know each other, people make friends, you know, people who have similar goals to also stay sober. So I figured the best place to go talk to people would be where they gather and where they go to talk about their experiences. You know, I talked with the directors, I talked with staff, and really the, the way to meet people there was to just hang out, you know, when people after a meeting would go to the parking lot and smoke a cigarette or two. Uh, you know, I didn't go to any of the meetings just out of respect for, you know, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous, heroin anonymous, right. you know, they're open meetings. Nothing would have really stopped me. Um, but I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to do, even if I wasn't going to be taking notes, you know, cause one of the core tenets also of 12 step programs is to keep anonymity. You know, that was a bit more of a challenge. I think like I definitely wanted to go and ask people if they'd be okay with me hanging out and taking notes just about them. But people really felt like that that's like a step they didn't really want to cross, but it was, you know, it was okay. And really just talking to people in parking lots. And then, you know, you talk to one person, you say, Hey, do you know someone who, and then they connect you with someone and then they connect you with somebody else. And honestly, people were, uh, a lot of people were quite open to sharing their stories. You know, for me, I felt like I just had to navigate a lot of, like there was a lot, to learn uh, about kind of just how to respect people's boundaries, give them the space to talk about these things and to just get used to absorbing a lot, right? A lot. Like you're, you're talking to people and they're going through things like basically in front of you. What do you mean? I mean, people have been through a lot, like really a lot. And some are, like barely hanging on to their hope and conviction that they can, you know, stay sober. And it's just like, we all, we just assume, you know, a person, people choose, right. And it's true. Like people make choices, but I imagine that that's why it can be so painful for people who are in recovery because they figure, well, I should be able to choose to not, relapse, right? I should be able to lean on the tools I've been learning and I haven't, and therefore I am worthless, you know? So just talking to people who are like right in front of you, you can see in their eyes, you can see and you can hear in their tone of voice, just there's a lot going on where, you know, like they could die, you know, tomorrow, right? Which is really different from the kind of reporting experience I've had before. Well, let's talk about some of the people you met and and spoke with. Really compelling stories. Uh, Can you tell us about Jim? Why did you want to tell Jim's story? Jim's story was really interesting to me because it, because his experience just exemplified this, this fact that doesn't matter how long you've been in recovery, uh, you can still relapse. And also kind of showed how the pandemic and, again, all those stressors could affect even, again, someone who's been in recovery for, who's been sober for 17 years. How was Jim faring as COVID kind of bore down on our world and and how did he cope with those stressors in his life? Well, so he he didn't really. I think at the 
it was kind of a perfect storm as he described it. Like by the time the pandemic hit, you know, he was saying that he was getting tired of like his identity being so tied up in being someone who is addicted to heroin. Like he stopped really going to meetings as often. Mm -hmm. He just felt like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. And then when the pandemic, you know, he stopped going to meetings, these 12 step meetings altogether. He tried zoom just wasn't for him. Anxiety started to pile up. Like one of the things he talked about is how absolutely terrified he was of the uh, administration at the time. Like he was convinced it was just going to be absolute catastrophe. He was scared of getting COVID and he wasn't seeing his daughters. So I'm like a handful of times socially distanced. He's a social guy, you know, every weekend he's doing something, you know, and he has lots of friends from recovery. And, you know, he would tell people like, Hey, you know, I'm kind of struggling a little bit, you know, either his daughters or friends and the way one of his daughters described it. And he did as well was like, you know, the guy's been sober for 17 years. Like he's going to be okay. Like if anyone's going to be okay, it's going to be him, you know? And it just uh, accumulated and accumulated until, you know, that was the escape route. So, and, you know, he just started thinking about it, like chewing on this idea of wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? Like I can just not feel all of these things if I, you know, if I do that, if I get some of uh, this substance, right? It wasn't like a real possibility in his mind until he actually saw someone who was high, you know, then it kind of grew in his mind. And that was just in public, right? I mean, he just saw the telltale signs of, of someone who was high on heroin, having being an addict himself, and that kind of stuck with him, right? Uh, it just stuck with him for the rest of the day. And what's interesting, by the way, is that he and so Donna said something similar where they both kind of thought like, you know, there's no basically accountability. It's like usually if you're meeting up with people, they'll know, right? Or they can figure out if you've been using. But if you don't see anyone at all, mm-hmm. no one's going to know, right? So I think Donna put it like, if, if there's ever a time, if I want to go get high again, like now's the time. You mentioned Donna. Donna Burton is another person you profiled um, for your little mini package. Um, how is her experience different than Jim's? Um, she, well, obviously she's a woman and she's younger, right? But what other, what other uh, differences in her uh, experience with drugs? She was much fresher into her recovery and she had made such incredible strides just in the prior few years. She just had got this great job, you know, after basically thinking she was going to work at like Subway the rest of her life because of her. She just fought off essentially or worked around the little voice in her head that would say, hey, why not? I mean, who cares really? Because she, you know, she would just sit in her room all day, just like many of us. Mm-hmm. And gradually become more and more consumed by her thoughts and depressed, you know, f- go falling asleep really late, waking up really late, watching TV. And, you know, she, she, she was said like, you know, the wolves, you know, which you choose which one uh, to feed. Right. And so in a lot of those moments when wolf, she didn't want to feed, she would, you know, 
call a friend or you know th there were people she was regularly in touch with and would just tell them how she wanted to use and actually so she she was thinking about just you know some alcohol or getting some uh weed but she knows like that that leads down the path to you know relapsing to heroin and so i think ultimately there was just too much to lose you know and i mean it was great i mean it was great talking to everybody here uh really uh special honestly for folks to open up so much i think donna is also just a really uh, kind of proud person who really just has a lot of respect for herself and believes she can grow and wants to grow and is like hey the whole wide world's out there in front of me i mean she didn't necessarily say that explicitly but i just yeah. got this feeling of someone who's ambitious and hopeful and sees that she can get over all the stuff that happened and that she did in her past she's a young woman and and um jim is you know 59 or on the doorstep of 60 and has a you know adult kid so different places in life right everyone has a different story of where they were when when COVID came very much so very much so all right well, let's talk a little bit more about the the third story um the third oregonian you you profiled um what can you tell us about sean and, and why you gravitated toward his story so sean i think uh is a really important you know component of the little mini package because i mean i would say that of everyone his situation is the most tenuous you know jim does have 17 years of practice right staying sober he has two adult daughters who are checking his gps location multiple times a day you know donna battled through what she was experiencing and has this wide community sean hasn't been sober all that long you know he knows he doesn't have all those tools kind of in hand and just talking to him you know he, he's one of those folks one of those people i talked to who more so than donna and jim like much more so seemed to be like struggling to be confident that he was going to be okay you know yeah you know he's putting all of his energy right now into like a dozen hobbies and projects you know he's playing the piano hours a day you know he's 31 and like two months ago he picked up piano and is just going at it like full throttle you know so i really respect what he's doing uh to you know to become who he wants to be ultimately how many jim donna's and and sean's are there out there i mean do we know how many oregonians are addicted to drugs or alcohol is that a number we know i don't and i doubt anybody does uh i know that in you know 2019 like 35,000 people were diagnosed with opioid use disorder but that's diagnosed like people who went for some sort of treatment or another you know so people getting treatment is definitely not the same as people uh with substance use uh, disorder so I can't really answer that question. What did you learn from these conversations, Fedor, about, I don't know, yourself or the human condition? Because, you know, you've had a lot of interesting stories over the last year of people and various life experiences and losing loved ones and so much, um, so many intense stories tied to the 
the pandemic. And I'm wondering what sits with you about these stories. That is a really profound question. You know, I would say that these stories really humbled me, I would say, ultimately, because I felt that in the past year I'd gotten like, you know, a good dose of human pain and processed it and turned it into stories. So I kind of went into this like, oh, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing here. But I would say I kind of didn't. Like I, I, I was just struck by how much living humanity there was right in front of me. Like people are living the thing that they're telling you about. And there's just so many layers of, like it gets existential for folks, you know? It's like, you know, if you're using, you are you have one bit human path. And then if you don't, you have another, you know, and you have the choice to create whichever one you want, but it's really hard. So it just gets to this core question of how do people choose and how do they create themselves and why, you know, and why they do or do not want to. And like, their entire lives kind of hang in the balance. So, and everybody deals with it in completely different ways. So I think what, what sits with me is kind of seeing that struggle or that battle right in front of me. And, you know, ha- having the privilege of people sharing that experience that, you know, I think for a lot of us, that kind of process happens almost like in the background, you know? Yeah. For these folks, you know, for, for, for people with uh, substance use disorder, it can really be very much not in the background. I think maybe for many of us, it's like, oh, I'm 50. Who am I, you know? Who am I really? I'm, I, I don't know. I actually don't know how that works exactly. But it's like the difference between using and not using can be like, who fundamentally, fundamentally am I and who fundamentally am I going to be? And the switch from the one to the other can be as simple as like walking three blocks and buying to use, right? Like the most fundamental question of who a person is, you know, inside how they feel about themselves and who they're going to be. And, you know, their feelings of self-worth and self-respect and also just their lives. Like people literally do die, right? All of that, all of that, that's a lot of really important stuff just centers around this one moment where somebody makes a choice. It can be really, really hard to make the choice that people kind of really want to. And it's always up to each individual while at the same time it is like, an illness. You know, like Jim here, like at the end of our conversation, like one of our interviews, I remember he's saying like, yeah. And I just like, you know, when he started really getting back into recovery and talking to people about what happened, he was like, yeah. And I just know that I'm a really good guy. Like I've helped a lot of people, you know, because so much is tied up in shame, right? People recover, you can try to hide it. You feel ashamed. And then he's like, you know, I just know I'm a really good guy. I've helped a lot of people, right? So that's also, that, that's sort of what, what I'm saying, if that makes sense. I don't know. This isn't about like, oh, you choose who you want to be. You know, it's your own fault if you're using, you know, that, that's, yeah. I just want to make clear that that's not like what I'm saying. 
I hear you. Let's take a break and then come back and talk more with Fedor Zarhin. And this time we're going to change gears and, and talk about a trip up Mount Tabor. Okay, Fedor, uh, this is a, a different sort of conversation, but you took a jaunt up Mount Tabor recently and wrote about some of the some of the people you encountered. What prompted this story? I had a uh, a shift the day the addiction stories ran, actually, hmm. and there was a no breaking news, and it was nice outside, and I liked taking pictures, so I talked to Jim um, Ryan, the editor. I was like, hey, you know, why don't I just go out there, take pictures, talk to some people? And he was like, yeah, why not? So I went out there and am glad I did. Yeah, it's a, it's a great read. We'll share a link in the episode notes. But I guess let's talk about some of the people you, you met and spoke with uh, up on that old uh, dormant volcano in Southeast. Yeah, I, I just approached people you know the, the first uh it was just you know there were these uh a man and a woman kind of leaning against the railing by the reservoir who seemed a little bit bored and had a little puppy just you know it was a man who'd moved to portland a year ago his sister came to visit it was the puppy's first time at mount Tabor, chewing everything there were two women who hadn't seen each other in about a year, law school students, and from like far away, I could hear them laughing a lot. They're sitting by this view with kind of tall grass right there in front of them. And I just kind of just joined right in, just like slipped in there somehow, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to make them laugh as well. And they kept laughing. I mean, they were kind of laughing because like I had to go behind the grass and the to take pictures of them because there was no space and it was tall grass. And then uh, there was a pretty steep slope and uh, they were trying to, I think they were trying to tell me that they would save me if I rolled down the hill, but I was a little bit skeptical because clearly that would have made them laugh more. I don't know, but it was, it was, uh, it was nice. You know, they were, they had just been having, like they said, a very deep conversation about some things uh it was kind of funny when one of them was like you know i'm taking pictures there with this big camera like out and within like a minute of me arriving I'm taking these pictures she's like i feel like i'm being punk right now like you know it's just like what what is this <laughs> but this turned into this great little package of humanity right and for me it kind of was like a a, a great uh time capsule of post-pandemic Portland or, you know, kind of just barely eking out of the pandemic Portland. Is that kind of what, what your takeaway was as well? So my takeaway was, yeah, that, but, but really I think what was striking to me thinking about it is, you know, like if I'm going for a walk somewhere, you know, by myself or with someone, it's like, I'm in my world, right? or we're in our world. And these other people who pass by, they're like the trees, you know, like I don't, I'm not really thinking very much about them. I'm kind of forgetting that they have their own very, very important worlds going on. And here I'm just talking to all these people and everyone's got this world that is really important to them. Like there's a lot going on with every single person and it's super important. So to just kind of, fly between this one world to another to another 
mm-hmm. gathering just little bits. Uh, it's like it feel, it's like switching channels, you know, where on every channel there's something intense happening. And it was great how willing people were to share uh, what was going on with them. And like overall, it was positive. You know, uh, people had like interesting stuff to talk about. Like, uh, you know, th- there was nothing really bad. People, people were just kind of chill, I guess, <laughs> and really willing to share kind of their their experiences. Yeah, so it was just uh, a pleasure to have people be so open and just rem- remind me at least that all of them. All of these people have a lot going on. Again, I'm repeating myself, I know, but uh, that is important. You know, uh, listeners might be just nervous thinking about it, right? Going up to random people uh, on the street and, and kind of chatting them up. Uh, in, in the before times was one of those journalism assignments that depending on who you are, some people are really good at it. Some people, it's a struggle. Sometimes you get rebuffed pretty, pretty hard. It's not always fun in my experience, but um, I don't know. I'm I'm wondering if you think that it just something about you, Fedor, or just that moment on that day on Mount Tabor, it just kind of the stars aligned um, or just people are in good mood post pandemic or kind of, you know, fully vaccinated life. I don't know what, how do you, how do you, compartmentalize all of that hmm. you can just say i'm just that that damn good man that's fine you can say it no 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 i mean i i just <laughs> i just put a lot of effort and care into it like i'm careful and i really pay attention and i try to be kind and you know if i can make someone laugh I I try, right? And you know, I just try to be as engaged as possible and try to read people and kind of adapt accordingly so that they're comfortable and I also try to be really relaxed myself because like if I'm a little tensed up then that, that tenses other people up and you know, I do genuinely care about what's going on with them like i kind of get sucked into their stories and i think people maybe can feel that and also i mean we've all been sitting around for so long that people are like oh, this person will listen to me <laughs> yes please please i've got so much you know so, yeah i don't know just got to pay attention to folks and give them some care i guess well, uh, it was a fantastic read, and thanks for thanks for doing it, and and thanks for taking time to talk about it. Thank you for your very kind words. I feel like it's all going to my head. I'm sure when I get back the uh, edited draft that I sent in last night, it'll bring me back to to earth. I hope so. No, really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, you'll always have Mount Tabor, Fedor. Right. Exactly. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to Fedora's series on people with substance abuse issues coping with the pandemic in the episode notes. I also shared a link to Fedora's dispatch from Mount Tabor. Check out his stories. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts or tell a friend. Help spread the word. 
If you value our journalism, the best way to show it is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.